Good morning, guys and gals. Glad to be with you this morning. Um, it's been, uh, our, our summer series is always fun. It's, it's an exciting chance to get to break out of our normal routine of going through a single book of the Bible for an extended period of time, little by little, and to look at some bigger topics from a wider angle, and that's always fun. Uh, it's good to get a chance to um, uh, split the preaching duties up in the summertime, and you hear more from me and from Blake and from other friends. Um, but I think we're all excited to hand the keys to the pulpit back over to Bryce next week. Um, we've missed uh, having them around and hearing your voice and all that. Um, but yeah, so we're glad that, that they're back. I'm glad that you guys are here with me today. Um, we have uh, today and next week, those are our last two weeks for our Vintage Values sermon series. Um, and then we're going to start the book of Second Peter, which is exciting. We did First Peter, uh, we finished First Peter in May, and uh, so we're going to be starting Second Peter sometime soon, and uh, that's going to be exciting. So I'm glad about that. Uh, I, we did this sermon series in 2015, and so I preached this sermon in 2015, uh, but I've got to apologize because uh, I, I pulled up my sermon from 2015. I was just going to make a few edits and just represent it to you because none of you remember it, um, but... You may remember how miserable you felt because I pulled it up. And generally, now when I preach, a 35 to 40 minute long sermon typed up is about nine or 10 pages. And I pulled up this sermon from 2015 and it was 14 pages long. Um, so I will, I'm, I'm glad to let you know I cut about four pages of extra things out of the sermon uh, to hopefully not make us all miserable today. Uh, so uh, when I start teaching, I teach guitar. Um, for a living, for those of you that don't know, I teach guitar and some other instruments. And whenever I start teaching a new guitar student, I always start um, with a few of the same questions. And one of them is, have you ever experienced anything beautiful before? And they're like, yes. I'm like, okay, what? Give me an example. And so they'll usually say uh, a sunset or a flower or a walk in the woods. Um, and I'll say, how did that make you feel? And I'll say, good. Yeah, they, 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 they just met me. They're never, never quite sure how to take the question. But I'm like, yeah, they make you feel good. Beautiful things make you feel good. They make you excited to be alive in that moment experiencing that thing. That's gratitude, right? That's, that's, that's what gratitude is. When you, when you feel like, okay, this is a special moment. This is a special thing, and I'm just really glad to be here. You know, whether it's eating a favorite meal uh, or seeing your best friend walk in the room, or watching a funny movie. Like, those are beautiful moments that we should be thankful for. They're gifts from the Lord. And so my point is, okay, that feeling, that's the kind of sound you want to get from your guitar. Whether you're playing Mary Had a Little Lamb, or you're playing a song you heard on the radio, or a song you sing at church, or whatever, you always need a beautiful sound, a sound that makes you excited to be doing what you're doing. Um, and they're like, oh, okay. All right, so sometimes I get a little too deep with them, I think. But, but, that, but I thought about that, um, that idea um, from hearing Blake's sermon a few weeks ago. Blake did a sermon on worshiping passionately um, and worshiping as a lifestyle uh, a few weeks ago. Um, and his, one of his main points is that true worship is our response to seeing the undeniable beauty and glory of God. We see the truth of who he is and who we are because of what he has done. And worship is our response. We see the beauty of that. Uh, and that inspires gratitude uh, for the believer. Uh, he did a great job, Blake did, of articulating what we mean when we say that we want to cultivate disciples who worship passionately. 
He pointed out that we are all by nature worshipers of something, everyone, and that every human merely aims their worship at something. For Christians, we must not limit our definition of worship to our religious acts, however well-intentioned they may be. Instead, we must understand that worship is a way of life. Worship is everything that we do, not just the things that we do on Sundays when we're gathered together. Because all things are from Christ and through Christ and to Christ for his glory, our reasonable response, the normal everyday thing that is accepted, uh, is that we should present ourselves to him as living sacrifices. That's what Romans 12 tells us to do. It's an act of worship that never ceases, that consumes every moment of our lives, uh, from drinking our morning coffee to responding to the driver who cuts us off in traffic to spending your money to how you spend your day off. Every moment, every aspect of life that you can imagine can and should be an act of worship to God. Uh, a life of wor- worshiping passionately is a life of constantly asking ourselves this question. In light of the gospel, how should I live this moment? If the gospel is true, how does that affect the way that I am disciplining my children, the way that I am paying my taxes, the way that I am finding peace in life, whatever. Every moment we ask that question. That's, that's how we live a life of worshiping passionately. In light of the gospel, how should I live this moment? So since Blake uh, did such a great job of establishing the idea that worship isn't restricted to our religious acts, we're going to examine some of our religious acts today. Um, We're going to see what the Bible says about corporate worship, the gathering of believers together to worship God. We're going to look at uh, what we do on Sundays, why we do it, uh, and what effect it has on us when we do it. So we're going to ask that question in a little bit of a different way. In light of the gospel, what should it look like for the local church to gather for worship? That's going to be kind of our guiding principle today. So to answer that question, we're going to start by asking a different one, and that's our first point for the day, which is why do we gather for worship? Why do we do it? Worship leader Matt Boswell uh, said that corporate worship is a lifting of the gaze from created things to the uncreated one. So a shift in our perspective and our mindset. Theologian Wayne Grudem defined worship as glorifying God in his presence with our voices and hearts. Even though God is everywhere and we should be worshiping him everywhere and in every moment, Grudem said that there is a special sense of God's presence that we only experience when we gather together to worship. So the answer to this question, why do we gather for worship, simply put is that we gather to glorify God by enjoying him together. We gather for worship to glorify God by enjoying him together. There is no reason in the world that a diverse and selfish group of people, like we all are, would choose to gather regularly and live in community with one another without the gospel of Jesus. There's no other reason for most of us to be in the same room so often. It's Jesus. By his grace, God brings us together. We are compelled by his love to be with others with whom we share this treasure, even though they may be very different than us. God creates harmony with our diversity. The local church uh, is like the opening chord of A Hard Day's Night by the Beatles. If you haven't heard the song, you should hear the song, or at least the first 10 seconds, because there is this chord that happens at the very beginning of the song, and it is unmistakable. It's one of those things that you hear, 
and if you've heard the song before, you know what's happening. Like, we all have songs like that. We hear the first second, and we're like, yes, right? But this chord that happens at the beginning of A Hard Day's Night is impossible to play on the guitar by yourself. It took four people playing four different parts to create this one really unmistakable harmony sound, right? People have tried to figure it out. How can I play all that? You can't. You can't play it together. You can't play it by yourself. You had to have four people doing it. And that's what gathered worship is. You can't get this, what we're experiencing this morning. You can't get that by yourself. You can't get that on a live stream or on TV. It happens when believers gather together. It is a beautiful thing for individuals to live lives of worship to God. It's what is expected of us in response to the gospel. But it is far more beautiful for those people, for us, to gather as one, to link arms and hearts and voices as one to worship. It is an intricate and layered and deeply meaningful experience. It's a communal expression of what has happened to each of us that deepens and intensifies the personal worship of every individual. And for me, it's one of the most convincing proofs that the gospel is true, is that after 2,000 years, we're still doing this every week. Uh, The custom of gathered worship is an act that God ordained all the way back when he spoke to Moses from the burning bush. Uh, And in order to understand why we do what we do in congregational worship today, we need to take a quick look at what biblical worship has looked like historically. Uh, So like we've been doing for our summer sermons, it's going to be kind of a wide-angle view. So I'm just going to tiptoe through a few passages from the Bible. So you can jot these down uh, and go back and look at them because it really is truly interesting to kind of go deep and see how God's people have worshipped over the years. But I'm not going to give you those four pages of the sermon. You can look that up on your own. Um, So Exodus 3 is where uh, God meets Moses um, at the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3. And he explained to Moses his plan to rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt. And we all know the story. God says, go to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go, and whatever. But the reason that God tells Moses to give to Pharaoh, that Pharaoh should be letting the people go, is so that they can go worship together in the wilderness. That, that's, the, that's like the point. We kind of forget that. God, go tell Moses to let my people go. But he said, go tell them to let, go tell them to let my people go so that they can worship me in the wilderness. Um, He cared about their suffering. He wanted to release them from slavery. But the point was that they were going to go together and they were going to worship. And so in Exodus 19, after all the plagues and all the things, uh, this gathering actually happens. They worship together at Mount Sinai. Uh, The people gathered outside their camp to meet God. And there was a whole three-day preparation period. There were very strict rules about what was about to happen. Do not touch the mountain. Don't let your animals touch the mountain. And they all gather to worship God. And God descends upon the mountain in fire and in smoke. And Moses speaks to God. And God answers Moses with thunder and lightning. And then Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. And I don't know what significance this has, but I've always thought it's interesting that God spoke to Moses from a burning bush, and then he spoke to the entire nation of Israel from a burning mountain. Um, I don't know what that means, but it's interesting. Um, So from there, uh, the Israelites begin their journey uh, of what ends up to be a 40-year wandering in the desert. But the book of Leviticus gives us a glimpse of what worship in the tabernacle was like as they wandered for 40 years. Aaron and his sons were the priests, and they offered sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. It was a complex, bloody system that foreshadowed Christ's sacrifice on the cross. 
the people of Israel were constantly bringing sacrifices to the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was situated in the middle of the camp so that literally everything that they did was oriented around the tabernacle itself. They were, it was oriented around the worship uh, of God. Uh, it was an inescapable reminder of the power of sin but also of the grace of God to forgive sin because God said he would forgive their sin if they kept the law and if they made the sacrifices. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy, which comes after that, is an account of the words that Moses preached to the people as they're about to enter the promised land. They're all gathered together. They're about to enter the promised land. Moses is not going to enter the promised land with them. He knows that he is about to die. And so he, he preaches this giant sermon, which is the book of Deuteronomy. He re-preaches all of the commands that God had given them. And then in chapter 32, he sings a song, a song of praise and remembrance, of warning and lament. And the people were confronted with all the truth of their sin, God's holiness, God's wrath, and God's mercy. Later on in, uh, in 2 Chronicles, chapters 5 through 7, uh, there's a beautiful account of the worship gathering that was led by King Solomon when he dedicated the, the newly completed temple in Jerusalem. The elders of Israel and the heads of all the tribe, tribes assembled. The Ark of the Covenant was brought into the temple they made innumerable sacrifices. They sang songs that were accompanied by cymbals and harps and lyres and trumpets and other instruments. And when they heard the music, the people sang, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. They rejoiced together. They prayed together, and God's presence filled the temple. And then they held a week-long feast and a solemn assembly. So it was a giant event, a very beautiful, big thing. Later on, we read the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is full of songs of worship. Andy read one of them earlier. Uh, the Psalms 120 through 134 are called the Songs of Ascents. And they're the songs that the people of Israel would sing as they journeyed to Jerusalem for the feast days where they would all worship together in Jerusalem. They speak of looking to the Lord for their strength and help and of crying out to the Lord in prayer, of remembering God's faithfulness to Israel it was how they prepared themselves to worship together. Psalm 22 says, I was glad when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord, right? They're preparing themselves to go and worship together, to encounter the Lord. Later on in the book of Nehemiah, uh, uh, Israel has been in captivity and the exiles are coming back to Jerusalem. Uh, and they work together to repair the great walls surrounding Jerusalem. All the people gather together. Uh, and after they finished this work, Ezra uh, reads the, the, the book of Moses. He, he reads the law of Moses to the people. And everyone listened all day. They were shouting amen. They were bowing down in worship. Uh, and he wasn't just, just reading. He was preaching. He was explaining God's word so that the people could understand it. And the people wept. They wept when they realized the gravity of their sin. And then Nehemiah and Ezra stopped and proclaimed a feast. It was the first celebration of the Feast of Booths in many years. And so they had this feast, and they rejoiced at God's mercy in revealing his word to them and in bringing them back to Jerusalem. This isn't even close to an exhaustive list of all of the worship gatherings in the Old Testament, but it's a glimpse. Um, and it can kind of give you an idea of what it was like. To this point, we've seen sacrifices, and we've seen offerings, and God's presence filling the temple. We've seen atonement for sins, preaching, teaching, singing, musical instruments, remembering God's faithfulness. We've seen confession of sin and weeping and repentance. We've seen reassurance. We've seen rejoicing and a lot of feasting. And yet oftentimes, 
God's people were missing the point of all of this. For a lot of God's people, all of these sacrifices and all of these um, uh, feasts and worship gatherings and events, they, they just became something that they did. It was not the driving force in their lives. Worshiping God became an empty religious exercise. They were not enjoying God together when they gathered. And so Jesus came along to expose this. This was one of the reasons he, he came, is he exposed this deep disconnect between appearing like you are worshiping God on the outside versus what's actually happening in their hearts. Um, I should have looked this verse up in quote, but I think it's in Isaiah that says that the, these people, they're worshiping me, but their hearts are far from me. And Jesus points this out. He tells the Pharisees, he's like, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You look really great on the inside, but inside you're dead. So Jesus was coming to expose uh, this disconnect between what worship looked like and what worship was. It's during his life that the full picture of true worship comes into view. All the Old Testament prescriptions for worship are shown to have been foreshadows of Jesus himself. The sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the temple, the holy of holies, they all find their fulfillment in Jesus. So uh, let's together, if you have your Bible, open up to John chapter 4, if you will. If you have your Bible or your app or whatever new, you know, thing that the Bible is written on. I think that they, they invented glasses that, that you can just like put the glasses on and then have the internet in front of your eyeballs. So if you've got that, John chapter 4, right in front of your eyeballs. We're going to read verses 19 through 26 in John chapter 4. Jesus is having a conversation uh, with the woman at the well, a woman who was from Samaria, who was not of the Jewish people, and she was, um, they were having a really interesting conversation. But uh, starting in verse 19, the woman says to Jesus, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I love moments like that where Jesus is like, hey, it's me. I'm the Messiah. Uh, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but I love that. So Jesus, once and for all, breaks the connection between worship and its outward forms, between worship and its location. Jesus became the great high priest who made atonement for sins. He became the sacrificial lamb who took the punishment for our sins. He tore the veil which separated the presence of God from the people of God. He became the means by which we can know God, and he made the church, the hearts of his chosen people, the temple of God. He told this woman that the hour had come when it no longer mattered where you worshipped, it only mattered who and how. He said that true worshipers must worship God in spirit and in truth, seeing God for who he is and responding with worship, aiming our lives at him as our true north. Worshiping in spirit and in truth had always been the heart of worship. That was always the point. 
But Jesus redirected our attention to it. He was drawing a line in the sand that we couldn't ignore. So throughout the New Testament, when you see the apostles talking about worship, there is a shift in the language of worship. Worship is no longer linked to a time or a form or a place. It says things like, we are the royal priesthood. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our worship is to present ourselves as living sacrifices. We no longer attend worship. We worship now. And it is more important that we experience worship in our hearts than we go through a certain form or go to a certain place. Uh, Later on, in Acts chapter 2, we see how the early church worshiped together. Um, In Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here we don't see a description of a worship service, but we see their worship lifestyle. Devotion to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, sharing meals, prayer, wonders and signs, sharing and giving away physical belongings, attending the temple daily, gladness, generosity, praising God. This is, worship had genuinely consumed their entire lives. It was who they were. And so when they attended temple, when they gathered together, it was an overflow of what was happening individually in their lives. And that was always the point. That was always the point of gathered worship, is that it was, going, it was meant to be an overflow of what's happening individually that fuels what is happening individually, right? We, it's this cycle that we come together and we worship, and it fuels us. It reminds us of who we are and what God has done for us. And then we go back and we live our lives, and we're individually living lives of worship. Then we get back together, and we just, it just keeps pouring into each other. So that's a glimpse of how God's people worshipped him throughout biblical history. And there's a lot of variety there. Gathered worship has looked different depending on the occasion, depending on the age. But knowing that, how do we decide what to do or what not to do when we gather for worship? So our second point for today, our second question is, what should we do when we gather for worship? What should we do when we gather for worship? Uh, the, most, the first aspect of this and kind of the first sub-point that I think is really important is that Christian worship should be framed and informed by the word of God. That is the bottom line. Christian worship should be framed and informed by the word of God. It's only when we are leaning into his word that we can chart any kind of proper course. In Colossians 3, 16 and 17, Paul says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We are supposed to saturate ourselves in God's word, allowing it to take root and flourish in our hearts, to shape us into the image of Christ. This is the renewing of our minds that Blake talked about from Romans 12. The Bible is the means by which our fleshly perspective is transformed into a godly one. 
As the word of Christ transforms us, we will be able to teach and correct each other in wisdom. We will sing songs of thankfulness out loud and in our hearts to God when we are transformed by his word. Pastor Brian Chapel said, whether one intends it or not, our worship patterns always communicate something. The songs we sing, the way that we pray, the way that we preach, the order of our service, everything we do when we gather communicates something. This is a wonderful thing, and it is a kind of a terrifying thing. Everything we do when we gather must point people, must point ourselves to the truth of who God is, what he has done, and who we are because of it. As Chapel put it, Christian worship is a representation of the gospel. So if our worship patterns are so important, and there can be a right and a wrong way to do it, why isn't scripture more clear about what we should do? Right? Like, where is the order of service? That would make life a whole lot easier. There's a lot of things that seem like they would be easier if God was just like, here's how you do it. Uh, but that's not life. Uh, God, it, walking with Jesus involves faith and trusting him. And I think this is one part of that. Uh, there's a great John Calvin quote about the vagueness of scripture on uh, precise worship patterns. He talks about how God didn't give us a detailed worship service plan because he knew that times and cultures would change. And since congregational worship practices and preferences aren't necessary to salvation, they can be adapted to fit each nation and each age. If we are letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly, Calvin said that love will best judge what may hurt or edify. And if we let love be our guide, all will be safe. God knows his creation. God knew that all cultures would change drastically between the first century and 2023. But he knew that the truth of the gospel is timeless. The gospel transcends time, place, and culture. So instead of setting up a specific worship pattern in the New Testament, he left a flexible sketch of what congregational worship should be. How else would the gospel have spread to every tribe, tongue, and nation? The Bible is vague about this for the purpose of missions. Our worship patterns don't matter so much as the substance of the gospel. This is why you will see dramatically different services in New York City and Panola County, in Johannesburg and in Jerusalem, in 1790 and in 1990 and in 2023. If we allow scripture to inform and frame our worship gatherings, and if we let love be our guide, all will be safe. And we can honor God and edify the church as each individual community and region of the world needs it. So Christian worship should be framed and informed by the word of God. And when it is, we will encounter a few important themes. This is kind of our second subpoint under there of worship themes. Historically, the church has maintained several general themes in its congregational worship. Um, and we also strive to emulate these every week here at Vintage. These themes run throughout the passages we explored earlier in the Old Testament. And these themes are, number one, adoration. This is acknowledging and celebrating God for simply being who he is. Holy, powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, creator, sustainer, redeemer, deserving of all praise. Right? Adoration. Uh, we sang uh, in the bridge of that last song, um, holy, holy, Lord Almighty, good and gracious king. That could be the song, like, unto itself. Because God is who he is, we adore him. So adoration is one of the main themes in Christian worship. Uh, the next is confession and lament. 
when we are reminded of who God is, we are reminded of who we are. Sinners, separated from him, apart from his grace. When, when Isaiah is transported to the throne room of God and he sees God in his glory, he is ruined because he sees how sinful he is. And so uh, confession, admitting our sin before God, is an important part of Christian worship. We confess our sins to him because you can't pretend. When you are in the presence of God and you see him for who he is, there's no pretending. And so there's nothing left to do but to confess. And we confess our sins, John told us in 1 John, because he is faithful and just to forgive us for our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We acknowledge and we mourn our sin. We mourn the effects that sin has had on the world when we gather together. When sin affects our community locally, deeply, we mourn those things together and we confess those to him. But... Number three is assurance. We confess those things and we lament those things. And we, we honestly, uh, we, we don't try to gloss things over, right? That's not the real Christian response to suffering and to sin. We don't pretend like everything's going to be okay, like we're just going to stay positive, guys. That's not. No, we, we, we reckon with those things. We see the reality of those things. But we do it with the perspective that we have assurance, we remember that though our sin is great and infinitely offensive to God, though our sin has done unfixable damage to the world and to ourselves, Jesus saves us from our sins. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we are no longer slaves to sin. Even though we sin, we have hope in Christ. His grace is greater than all our sin, and as his children, our standing with him will never, ever change. Even through all of our struggles with sin, even through all of the calamities that happen in the world because of sin, our standing with God will not change because Jesus will not change. And we have that assurance, that blessed assurance that we sing about so much. Being assured of God's love for us through Jesus and of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit gives us confidence as we, that we can lean on. Um, when we go out into the world. So the, the, the last theme, we have assurance, but another theme in Christian worship is that we are giving some sort of sending charge, a benediction, where we are sent out. Just as Isaiah answered God's question of whom shall I send and who will go for us with, here I am, send me, we answer Jesus' great commission of go therefore and make disciples of all nations with, yes, Lord, we will go. We were saved from our sins for something. And so when we gather together, part of it is to kind of juice us up and, to, and send us back out into the world to obey and to live out the gospel and to share the gospel. In Ephesians 2, it says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so each week we are challenged to lovingly live out the commands of scripture, spreading the gospel in word and in deed. Incorporating these themes into our worship gatherings each week is a representation of the gospel. Because we forget. In the busyness of life, we lose perspective on who God is and what he has done. It's like we have spiritual amnesia. And our worship gatherings act as the antidote to our amnesia. It's a miracle drug that fights against our unbelief and our forgetfulness. Our goal for gathered worship is to reflect these sound worship practices that are found in scripture and that have been demonstrated throughout church history. We want to imitate our faithful forefathers. 
These themes show up differently from week to week. It's, some churches have a more, um, rigid isn't the right word, but a more kind of formulaic, like, we're going to do adoration, now we're going to do confession and lament. And, it, and, they kind of, and that's, that's fine. That's, that's great. We don't have it like that, but all of these themes end up kind of crisscrossing and mashing over each other through our songs and our prayers and through our sermons. And, um, and so, so even, even if, if you look back over the lyrics of the songs that we sang earlier, you're going to see this. You're going to see adoration. You're going to see confession and lament. You're going to see the assurance that he will hold us fast. Um, and you're going to see um, verses in parts of the songs that talk about us going back out into the world, prepared to live out the commands of Scripture. So how do we do that? So, so worship practices, those are the worship themes. How do we do this in worship services? So what we do in our worship services, our worship practices, number one, we pray. We humble ourselves and confess to God our need of him, that his will is more important than ours, that his glory is better than our temporal good. We pray out loud together, which is something that's kind of atypical for Baptist churches and churches of the Baptist heritage. We don't do that as much, but we do. Um, We're unifying our hearts and voices as we cast our cares on the Lord. Some of our congregational prayers are lifted directly from Scripture. Some of them were written long ago by saints of a different age and are meditations on truth from Scripture. Uh, Today's Scripture is like that. It comes from a, a book called Valley of Vision, which is a beautiful collection of prayers from people like John Bunyan, Charles Spurgeon, Augustus Toplady, who also wrote Rock of Ages that we sang today, and Isaac Watts. Uh, we also use the Book of Common Prayer, which is an Anglican collection of prayers that spans the yearly church calendar. Um, using these prayers reminds us that the church is much larger and much older and much more beautiful than we understand. When we worship together on Sunday, we are communing together, right? And, and we are united with Christians around the world who are gathering to worship on Sundays, right? But also when we do this, we are connected. We are doing the same sort of thing that people did in the 1500s and people did in the 1200s and that the disciples did in the upper room in the days after Jesus ascended to heaven, right? Like this is something, the church is bigger than we think it is. And that's beautiful. And so praying uh, and, and using prayers that, that precede us by many generations, that's one way of remind ourselves of that. We also spend time in personal prayer. Personal prayer time and examination is one of the best ways to respond to God's word uh, when we have been taught something from it. In reverence and humility, we can pray. We set aside time for this before communion each week, a time of private prayer to examine ourselves before we take communion. Um, but private prayer can happen anytime. You, you can pray anytime that you want to in the service. Sitting there, if you want to get up and leave, or if you want to just kind of close your eyes there in your seat and pray, like you're welcome to do that um, because that is an important part of worship. Um, so we pray, and number two, we sing. We sing because uh, one of the most defining characteristics of congregational worship throughout history has been the sound of God's people singing. There were some dark times in church history where congregational singing was prohibited. Only the professionals did that. Only the people who were, you know, picked could sing. And the church suffered for this. There is a mysterious quality about music that captures our mind and our emotions at the same time. Singing can lead us to an understanding of things that we couldn't otherwise grasp. And I don't, I don't know why that is. I don't, I don't have an explanation for that, but it is true. Sometimes when we're singing a truth about God or about ourselves or about the world, it will just crystallize in our hearts. Singing, uh, the the songs that we sing 
in worship deeply form who we are. They affect the way that we understand God and the way that we live out his commands. For better or worse, uh, there are examples in the world of churches who are singing songs that are not truthful about who God is and about who we are because of it. And I think that it's having very deeply damaging effects on the world around us. So we strive to sing songs that are rooted in God's word, that are beautiful, and that are culturally appropriate. There's a lot of great songs that just probably we wouldn't all like if we sang them. So we try to pick songs that fit with us, that we would enjoy, but that are also rooted in God's word, and they're beautiful. We try to avoid songs that are emotionally manipulative, that are hard to understand, or that are poorly written. Some of the songs we sing are really old. Some of the songs that we sing have only been around for a few years. Some of the songs that we sing are written specifically for our congregation. The newness or the oldness of something doesn't make it better or worse. The style of music and the instrumentation doesn't matter either. What matters is the truth and the beauty and the usefulness of the songs that we sing. So we pray and we sing and we also explore these worship themes when we preach. Uh, as we say, like all of the time, it's imperative to us that Scripture be preached primarily verse by verse through different books of the Bible, which is what we're going to get back into in a couple of weeks. This allows us to see what Scripture says in context, and it gives us the chance to relate each section of Scripture with the Bible as a whole. If we only preach topically, it's very easy to skip over, whether we mean to or not, but probably because we mean to, portions of Scripture that are more difficult to deal with. There are portions of scripture that are harder to understand and harder to apply. And if we preach verse by verse through the books of the Bible, we have to wrestle with what we are confronted with. And so that's why we preach the way that we preach. Uh, We preach because the Bible is God's unchanging absolute truth. It's the standard that we measure everything else against, especially the elements of our worship gatherings. We preach because the Bible is the most fundamental way that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. We preach because the Bible reminds us of who God is and what he has done and who we are because of it. We preach because time and time again, the preaching of God's word has proven itself to be a proponent of change in our hearts. From Moses to Ezra to Jesus to Paul to Martin Luther to Charles Spurgeon to John Piper to Bryce Holbrook. Preaching matters and it, it forms us as Christians. And so we preach. Number four, we take communion. The Lord's Supper is an element of worship that Jesus instituted the night before he was crucified during the Feast of Passover. So in the same way that the Jewish people would eat the Passover meal to remember God's rescue of their nation from slavery so that they could go worship in the wilderness, we take communion as a remembrance of Christ's death and all that it accomplished. It's a physical sign of a spiritual reality. It's a sign of unity among believers. It reminds us of Christ's love and all the benefits of salvation that belong to us as Christians. It's an expression of our need for Christ, and it's, uh, it's a sign of the continuing of the Christian life. Baptism is a sign of the beginning of the Christian life, and communion is a sign of its continuation. We take communion looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, when Christ and his church will finally be united. And then number five, we give tithes and offerings. Throughout scripture, we see examples of believers giving tithes, which means one-tenth of their income or their produce. We see offerings, which are contributions above or separate from the tithe. And in the New Testament, we read earlier, we see the church selling their possessions and giving to the poor and sharing everything that they didn't sell. We give tithes and offerings as a church to remind ourselves that what we have is not our own, that God is the giver of all that we have. We give because we believe in the work we are doing together as a church 
It's a sign of our commitment to each other and to the Lord. We give because there are people in need, both within our congregation and outside of it, and we must help them. That's one of the reasons that we are here. At this point, we aren't selling all that we have and living communally and all of that stuff, but that's not ridiculous, right? Like, that's not out of the question. And I knew that, I knew that was going to name it. It's not, like, that's, and it may happen again. Like, there are places in the world where Christians have to live like this. We don't, and that's a blessing, and I'm thankful for that. But that's not ridiculous. The, the heart of this is that we hold all that we have with open hands, right? That was the point of tithing and offerings in the first place, in the Old Testament, what I have is not mine, it belongs to God. And so we include that element in our worship service. It would be very easy just to put a box in the back and say, y'all drop your tithes in there when you leave. And that's fine, some churches do that. But we incorporate it as a part of our worship service because we want to remember that, hey, what we're doing here is a sign of worship to God. It's not just paying a bill. So those are the elements of our worship gatherings. Those are the ways that we explore adoration, confession, lament, assurance, and benediction. Um, we, as a leadership team, work hard to try to make our entire liturgy an exposition of the gospel every week. And this is what we do now, but please remember, it's probably going to change. It's changed in the past 10 years. Uh, the, the songs that we sing, the prayers that we use, the instruments on stage, the order of service, the location, uh, the person that is preaching, these things aren't set in stone and we can't make idols of them. There's been plenty of churches, even now, churches are being ruined because people are really picky about the way things look on the stage or the songs that they're singing or who's preaching. We can't make those things idols. We have to uh, trust in God's word. And for the sake of reaching the lost and ministering to our congregation, um, we're going to make changes as is necessary, and we're going to let love be our guide and try to do things wisely that will edify our church. All right, so very quickly, I'm going to close things up here with one more question. And this question is, what are the effects of gathering for worship? We've seen why we gather for worship. And we've seen kind of like the decision-making that goes through, like how we choose to do what we do. But what are the effects? Wayne Grudem, again, said that there are three important effects from gathering to worship. He said, we delight in God, and God delights in us. We draw near to God, and God draws near to us. And number three, God ministers to us. Now, all of these things are things that happen apart from gathered worship, but we don't, and, and we don't earn God's delight or his presence by getting together. It's not like we get together and we say the magic words and God appears. Uh, there's, something, there's just something special about being together. There's something irreplaceable about being with God's people in worship. I think the COVID era starkly brought this to light. Live streams are a blessing. And I think they were kind of a lifeline for us through that period. But God designed worship to be intensified and magnified by physical community. Our delight in God is maximized when we worship in his presence together. So if gathered worship is essential to our faith, why would we neglect it? If there's, if there's anything else, if there's anything that you walk away from today, I want it to be this. Why, if the gospel is true, if Jesus has saved us, why would we neglect and miss out on corporate worship? Why would our lives be oriented around anything else? Hebrews 10 makes this point. 
the writer is talking about the fact that we have access to God through Jesus, and because of that, we need to draw near to him. In verse 23 of Hebrews 10, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Meeting together is how we stir one another up to love and good works. It's how we hold fast our confession of hope. Bryce has talked about this before, but as a church, we believe that the biggest priorities for a Christian's life should be God, immediate family, church, everything else. And if something is competing for one of those top three spots that shouldn't be there, it needs to lose. That's what we believe. It, this isn't a legalistic thing. Like, we're not keeping roll and, like, you know, marking tally marks about, okay, this is how far away this person is from God because they missed this many times in the month of May or whatever. We're not doing that. Sometimes we are sick. Sometimes we have babies. Sometimes we are traveling. And sometimes we have to work. But if being with God's people becomes the exception in your life rather than the rule, that is a big problem. Disobeying this command from Scripture is an indication that something deeper is going on, maybe something that you don't even realize. It's easy to look at people committing the big loud sins and think, sheesh, I would never. You know, <laughs> cheating on your spouse, alcoholism, stealing, renouncing the faith, never. I would never do that. The thing about it is that people don't go off the rails overnight. People don't just wake up one day and decide that they're going to go and murder someone, or they're going to go become an addict, or they're going to go do something terrible. It starts with small things. I'm not saying that skipping church means you're going to become a murderer. That's not what I'm saying. But making a habit of not meeting with God's people is something that snowballs. And it has effects on you and the people around you that you don't realize. If you are disconnected from what should be your closest relationships, your entire mindset will start to change. The far-fetched, God-dishonoring things will start to seem not so far-fetched and not so God-dishonoring. Think about it like this. If you have an accident and you, like, chop off a pinky and you go to the emergency room, hopefully one of your friends who loves you very much has taken the thing and put it in ice and carried it with you so they can try to reattach it, right? Because body parts don't exist they don't survive very long when they are not connected to your body. It doesn't work. And so when we are disconnected from the, from the body of Christ, when we are disconnected from our local church, it's very hard to survive. The body of Christ misses you when you are not here. We want you to be here. We love you and we need you. Everybody. So as a Christian, unless you are physically impaired from doing so, it's not excusable to habitually neglect meeting together with your local church body. Some of our jobs make it necessary to miss on Sundays occasionally, and that's fine. We need, we need firefighters, and we need policemen, and we need doctors and nurses. We need those things. But uh, if that is a reality in our lives, then we have to lean even harder into other worship gatherings, like our missional community gatherings and like our gospel circles and that sort of thing. We just have to be intentional about it, right? Whatever, whoever we are and whatever kind of life we have, the priority has to be I need to be with God's people. And that's going to look different in each of our lives, but we, that has to be the priority. 
This is meant as a warning, but as an encouragement too. It's a warning because real damage can be done to ourselves and those that we love as we slowly drift from intimacy with God and obedience toward God. But it's an encouragement because drawing near to God, worshiping passionately together with his people is a practice that bears life-giving fruit. Jesus saved us to live an abundant life. In worshiping in spirit and in truth, it's not a rule to be followed so much as a life of joy to exist within. And gathered worship is the chief expression of that abundant joy. So let us be passionate worshipers in our day-to-day lives and in meeting together as his people every week. Let's pray. Lord, it's so easy to forget how much we need you. And it's so easy to forget how much we need each other. And when we are gathered together, we're reminded. We're reminded of the people that you have made us through Christ. We are reminded of the person that you are. And we're reminded of what our lives should look like. We're reminded of how we should live when we meet together. God, that is such a blessing. Thank you for what you do when we are gathered together. I can't imagine what my life would be like if this wasn't a reality in it. And Lord, I thank you for the ways that you have used our gathered worship every week for the past 10 years to keep our church healthy and to help our church confront sin and to enter into joy. And I pray that that would continue to be a reality. Lord, may, may this thing that we do, this gathering together to worship you, Lord, may it be one of our chief priorities in life underneath obedience to you and love and care for our immediate family lord may we be faithful to our church may we worship together because of the good that it does to our brothers and sisters because of the good that we derive from it and chiefly because of who you are lord may this continue may it be real for us lord help us to make the right choices and prioritize the right things Holy Spirit, we pray that you continue to move in our hearts as we pray, as we take communion. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.